Hi everyone. This episode is from my other podcast, The Bend, but I wanted to add it to the Somebody's Watching feed because it's a good fit. Thanks again to horror specialist Dr. Alexandra Heller Nicholas and film professor Peter Lehman for their time. It was an honor to be able to chat with them about the lack of male nudity in film, the phallus, rape revenge, party trick nudity, the pitfalls of quote unquote respectable nudity, and a lot more. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Kevin Bacon. There's a big problem in Hollywood today. In so many films and TV shows, we see gratuitous female nudity, and that's not okay. Well, it's okay, but it's not fair to actresses, and it's not fair to actors, because we want to be naked, too. Gentlemen, it's time to free the bacon. And by bacon, of course, I mean your wiener, your balls, and your butt. So, hello, um, and welcome to a special episode of The Bend. Um, I'm very happy to be speaking with Emeritus Professor Peter Lehmann and Dr. Alexander Heller Nicholas today. Um, Peter Lehmann is the director of the Center for Film, Media, and Popular Culture at Arizona State University and the author of Running Scared Masculinity and the Representation of the Male Body, and the co author of Thinking About Movies, Watching, Questioning, Enjoying, Third Edition, along with many other publications on masculinity, pornography, the Western, and the male body. Dr. Alexandra Heller Nicholas is a film critic, critical consultant, and film programmer from Melbourne, Australia, who specializes in gender, genre, and representations of sexual violence, cult, and horror film, and women's filmmaking. She has published nine books on cult, horror, and exploitation cinema, including the seminal book and vital resource, A Thousand Women in Horror, 1895 to 2018, and Rape Revenge Films, A Critical Study. She's a two-time Bram Stoker Award finalist. So to start things off, um, I thought we could talk about our initial thoughts on the topic of male nudity in film, which is what we'll be talking about today. And I can start with that, if you don't mind. <laughs> so for decades now, I've observed this real imbalance between male and female nudity, and it has irked me because it seems to signal something larger, the impulse to protect this potentially vulnerable part of men, whereas women have not been given this choice and are constantly nude and looked at through the male gaze. Despite cinema being such a phallocentric realm, the actual penis is rarely seen. There's a shroud of mystery and mystique around it. Male genitalia is delicate, but I don't think that's what's at play here, and it reflects real-life attitudes towards the penis, obviously. I recently watched this documentary called Skin, A History of Nudity in the Movies, which was over two hours long, and male nudity got a fleeting five-minute mention, and of course the term male gaze wasn't even mentioned once. And this documentary was made in 2020. I found that to be really representative of the state of things, especially mainstream media. When discussing the making of the film, The Northman, Robert Eggers said he advocated for the actors to be nude in the final fight scene, but the higher ups didn't let him. He then says, and I quote, it's probably good that we don't see any penises there. It might distract from the story and the tension because human beings are such sad creatures that we would be trying to catch a glimpse the whole time. This goes far beyond the film industry, of course. As much as there's clearly an obsession with penises and penis size, the primarily male scientist didn't broach this topic until the mid 20th century. Um, I also want to be clear here uh, that we're mostly going to focus on the cis male penis in this conversation. And if that's not the case, I'll make that clear. Um, cis men are the ones who have had the ultimate say in the film industry and decided what is acceptable to see and what is not for most of cinema history. And so that's what this conversation will revolve around. 
So seeing that there's quite a lot of talk about the lack of sex appeal in cinema and the popularity of the prosthetic penis um, in film and TV and media culture these days, I thought this would be a good time to discuss the topic with two film scholars that deal with the representations of bodies and gender in different ways. So I'd love to hear your initial thoughts on the topic before I start uh, grilling you with questions. So I don't know who wants to go first, but uh, maybe Peter? I'm just going to do a brief outline of uh, history. It's obviously um, long and complicated, but I've been struck by some patterns uh, since male nudity um, was uh, first introduced in the United States in the late 60s with a, a new rating system that included an R, ra R rating. And um, mm -hmm. it, at that point, you began to have um, some male nudity. Um, an early example, I'll always give like one film, is the Jack Nicholson movie called Drive, he said, from 1968. And interestingly, it caused no controversy at the time. By um, another highlight that indicated a change was the film American Gigolo from 1980 mm. um, with uh, uh, Richard Gere. And that began an association of uh, as a male nudity with the star system. And um, wh what happened right. is there was a series of famous actors that became identified with different decades. For example, and I'm going to jump around outside the United States with, with these examples, Harvey Keitel and the Piano in 1993 from um, Australia, and then The Pillow Book from 1996, a British film with uh, Ewan McGregor. And at that point, mm -hmm. you begin to get a change in the popular culture um, discussion of male nudity because there's a lot of talk about how big his penis is, and that gets attention in the media. That was not the case mm -hmm. in the um, earlier examples. And then by um, 2011 with Michael Fassbender, the film Shame, it got to the point right. where um, a, a female critic uh, tweeted during the world premiere that his large penis knocks Ewan McGregor out of the top spot. So oh there God. was kind of... Um, uh, shift to um, paying attention to penis size and especially in relationship to well-known actors. Um, there's uh, three major events that account for the fact that male nudity has um, progressively gotten um, more common. Um, the first was the rise of premium cable uh, TV, which opens the floodgates for male nudity because uh, the Motion Picture Association in America had some strict gu guidelines about under what circumstances you could show the penis. But with TV shows like Oz, which started in 1997, mm. ran to 2003, there was no Motion Picture Association censorship, and there was extensive male nudity. The second event that I think helps explain why we're here today talking about this was the rise of the prosthetic penis, which created mm. another new wave of male nudity. And the examples that I have here, the, the main example is a, a fairly popular TV show called Spartacus, um, which was from uh, 2010 to 2013. And then the last thing that I want to mention and I think contributes to uh, this in this very brief history is the rise of the international, what we now usually call the international hardcore art film 
And that's where established filmmakers in the art cinema tradition um, began to uh, show not just penises, but erect penises and um, uh, sexual acts that struck many people as like um, pornography, which why, why it was called hardcore. The earliest example I know of, or an early example I know of a couple, a couple uh, uh, is in the realm of the census, a Japanese film from 1976. Mm -hmm. um, then in France, Catherine Breillat, several films, uh, perhaps the most well-known uh, romance um, called Romance Acts in the United States, 1999, and then one Anatomy of Hell from uh, 2004 that actually had a porn star in it. And then some recent British films, um, Nine Songs with Michael Winterbottom in um, 2005, um, and uh, the film Short Bus in the U.S. Um, from 2006. So I think there's a con confluence of a number of things going on involving the industry with uh, censorship guidelines and then mm -hmm. these various developments that I've just um, very, very quickly outlined for you. Yeah, thank you for that. I was actually going to ask about uh, the history of, of cinematic uh, penises, I guess. So this kind of covers that in a way. Um, Alex, do you have... Um, where do you see it yourself in this yeah. discourse? Um, I mean, Peter's work in this field is is obviously second to none. So I feel like I'm sort of just basking in the glow of this extraordinary knowledge here. Um, well, thank you very much. It's quite yeah. a treat to, to hear you talking about all well, of this stuff. I, I guess my approach uh, on, a, on a critical level, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I've written or published three books on, on rape revenge specifically. I do tend to come to nudity uh, on screen through the lens of violence and sometimes often extreme violence. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess in that sense, I, I feel that it needs to be said that I'm, I'm, I'm a cishet woman. I'm, I'm very pro-penis. I'm not a hater. Um, <laughs> this, this feels that it does need to be said. I was thinking while Peter was talking about um, my own experience, so I, I guess I'll go a little bit more anecdotal here, um, about the first time I saw full frontal male nudity on film. And it was very, mm -hmm. very different to the first time that I saw full frontal female nudity on film or even just topless women on film. And I remember it very specifically because I, I guess it was quite a formative moment for me. Um, it was the Merchant Ivory film from 1985, A Room with a View. And I, mm -hmm. I don't think I'd even hit puberty. I think I was maybe 11, maybe 12 years old. And, um, you know, I think my parents thought it was a sort of, you know, it's an appropriate film for a child to watch. And um, me and my little friends, we, we thought it was great. <laughs> we were like, wow. But it was a completely non-sexual scene. I think from memory, I mean, I haven't seen the film in years. It was just a bunch of guys. I think they were running to or from a lake. I'm, I'm going from memory here. But it was, um, mm -hmm. it was, it was non-sexual. It was very non-sexual. Yeah. It was just a bunch of guys having fun running around um in in the in the wilderness um whereas obviously uh I, d I don't remember my first the first time that i saw either full frontal nudity with a woman or or even topless but i sort of have an, an ambient memory that it's always sexual that it was you know it was always sort of risque and, and mm. sexy and and that's a really curious thing for me to sort of reflect on i guess through the lens of uh of what peter's just been talking about here yeah 
Yeah, because I guess in, in some ways it's actually often not sexual. The very first film that I mentioned, which caused no controversy or comment in the United States when it came out, the Jack Nicholson film Drive, he said, um, in fact, it's a, 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 it's a totally non-sexual situation. It's a college student who, for some reason, I can't remember the details either after all these years, has gone kind of crazy and runs into his chemistry lab and starts smashing, you know, the test tubes and everything. And mm. there's significant, um, really significant frontal male nudity, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with sexuality or eroticism. Right, right. It's interesting um, that you mentioned um, the the pillow book because that was that was such a formative, you know, just again anecdotally, just for my group of friends. Um, you know, obviously a few years later, um, being being a teenage girl, um, that that video was handed around my my straight girlfriends <laughs> like porn. I mean, it really was. Um, hmm. You know this this Peter Greenaway film, but you know the way that it was sort of surreptitiously passed from locker to locker on this VHS tape. Um, Do you? you know, um, I, I'd actually love to hear if you have any recollections of what some of the responses of your friends were at that time. Absolute delight. <laughs> I mean, we were all. Um, you know, this is sort of before we were sort of broadly sexually active. Um, we were curious, we were really horny, um, sort of burgeoning sort of young women and their sexuality. And it was a really formative thing for us, you know, and, and these were not, we were not the kind of, um, I probably had the most exotic taste. I was sort of very much raised in the, the era of the, um, the video shop. So, you know, we were, so I was less selective about what I watched. So, uh, you know, I'd watch a slasher film and an, and an art film next to each other quite comfortably and I think that's just a generational thing so um you know but we were pretty suburban otherwise you know it was sort of John Hughes films and Nightmare on Elm Street and things like that um and and yeah somehow somehow the pillow book Greenaway sort of made his way into this and it was really like a a, a sort of a privileged cultural artifact or a subcultural artifact I guess amongst my friends you know this it was really handed around how I would imagine porn was handed around between um, our, our cishet male counterparts. No, just that's a fascination, right. just, a, just a, a glee and a fascination and a delight, like a really, it was a delight watching you and McGregor's <laughs> cock as a, as yeah. a young woman. <laughs> I remember it being very liberating, um, not just for our own experiences, but also just to see sort of, sort of this idea of, um, you know, we've talked about the invisibility of the penis on screen, but just to see that let go of. Great. Um, okay, so my, my first question, I guess, would be um, about your book, uh, Peter Running Scared. You mentioned yes. or you point out uh, that there are only a few reasons um, Hollywood films will show the penis. Uh, can you talk about what they are and what they represent? Um, sure. Some of the patterns that I've seen, are you referring to? Yeah. In, yeah, or some um, some like re like reasonings, I guess why uh, oh, reason, why okay. that could happen. Uh, yeah. Yes, I um. From, and by the way, it's it's important to give the historical context of, um, this kind of work because the that book, the first edition and the second one only, the second edition only had a new closing chapter that was written in 1993. So obviously right. there are a lot of changes since then. 
though I, mm -hmm. I, there's still a kind of depressing uh, amount of the, the issues I talked about, which were basically, my For argument sure. was that um, there's a, a, and this ties into larger issues of representing the male body, but penises were either supposed to be large and impressive, and I use the word impressive because I think that has um, certain connotations and uh, assumptions worth thinking about, and that was supposed to create create like an awe. Um, and at the other pole, there were um, small penises that were uh, signs of um, ma masculine sexual failure or humiliation or even comedy, comic uh, stuff like mm. lots of penis-sized jokes with small men being the butts of the jokes. So there was a kind of polarity which I think reminded me at the time of the common polarity that um, so many women scholars had talked about with the mother and the whore in the representation of women, that, you know, kind of very limiting uh, uh, poles of um, uh, either an impressive spectacle or a comic failure. Um, so that's mm -hmm. one of the, um, certainly one of the um, main um, patterns that, yeah, yeah. Um, that I saw. And um, you mentioned that may have been two of them. Oh, uh, I'm not certain at what point I introduced this because I was doing work over a period of time. Um, and then there was a time when um, uh, melodrama, what I called the melodramatic penis, um, justified a kind of uh, representation of the, of the penis. And that actually... Um, tied in with a couple other cultural events, um, one of which in the United States, and I think this got international coverage, you guys can tell me, was the, the John Wayne Bobbitt case when mm -hmm. um, Lorena Bobbitt um, cut off her yes. husband's penis. And um, that uh, there was a lot of media coverage on that in the United States. And that was the first time, by the way, that the word penis was ever used um, in hmm. uh, the media, on television, and so forth. The first time, it's pretty shocking when you think about that. Um, and so, uh, and then there were some um, other artworks that a very, very interesting play by David Henry Wang, um, M. Butterfly, where there's um, a, a use of, very interesting use of male nudity, which is very melodramatic as, of course, was the, uh, the idea of uh, castrating the man and then throwing his penis out the window of a car, and then they come, up, they come along and they find it, and these heroic mm -hmm. doctors reattach it, and he becomes a porn star, and it's like extreme yeah. melodrama. And uh, it is something similar in M. Butterfly, and uh, where uh, there's a shocking revelation scene near the end of the play where... Um, a, a Western man who thinks he's been having a relationship um, with a woman that he fell in love with watching her in theatrical performance, uh, she reveals herself to be um, biologically a male, and there's a kind of like striptease that goes on, and uh, of course he's been the victim of, the, of cultural confusion, lack of knowledge that um, men played women's parts in the theater at that mm -hmm. point in time. And so that's like also an extremely melodramatic um, kind of event. 
And so I started thinking about how um, you have to have all these special reasons. You can't just, um, when I say you, I'm talking about like this mainstream use within Hollywood and the assumptions about when you can show the penis, that there has to be great significance to it. And so the significance can be that it's supposed to be an impressive spectacle. Um, it can be a, a comic failure, or it can be a melodramatic sign of, you know, some horrible melodrama that can only be shown um, with um, the uh, mm -hmm. uh, unexpected revelation of the penis. The Crying Game is an excellent example of that. Another very good movie, by the way. I don't want to make it sound like the films that did this are necessarily these things were necessarily good. I'm not looking at judging how good or bad they are. I like The Crying Game a great deal, but it's... Um, a perfect example of how the the shocking shot, you know, of the um, yeah. of the penis uh, could not be more melodramatic than it is in that movie. Which I mean, I, I would have to say that bit didn't age so well. I, <laughs> I guess, if, if in my eyes, but uh, it, did, yeah. it didn't age so well. Did you say? No, because it's this sort of, as you said, this melodramatic shock, right, of like yeah. seeing, I guess, a trans body in this case. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that and that, that's another issue. I'll shut up on this, but for the moment, but that that issue of how uh, these things age in a world where our notions of sexuality and the body have changed so much are very interesting. And you mentioned um, one of the representations would be the impressive um, penis, the, the big penis, which I guess is, I guess, the one closest to what would be the phallus in a way. I think it's it's kind of important to also mention this, you know, symbol, um, the phallus in this in this conversation. Um, do you have any any thoughts about how it's connected to to cinema, phallus and the and the, the penis sure. in sure. cinema? The penis, of course, when it's when these terms are used properly, and they seldom are in cultural discourse, the penis is just an organ, and it has. Um, no special meaning or significance beyond, uh, you know, how it functions as a bodily organ. The phallus mm -hmm. is uh, loaded with all kinds of symbolic cultural um, concepts and meanings. And um, the, the simplest way of describing that that I can always think of is that the phallus um, represents a kind of um, a mystical sense of power, which is uh, totally imaginary. And it's imaginary in the sense that men do not um, have any such power as a result of um, the penis, with which the phallus, though there's always a lot of argument and theory about the phallus is really not referring to the penis, that of course, uh, culturally, there's a strong connection between the two. And, uh, and that is what we see in cinema. Um, so the thing about the phallus is that it's imaginary, that it can, um, a penis size doesn't really tell you anything about a man in terms of how much power he has, how strong he is, um, how good a mm. lover he is, or anything else. Uh, it's, so it's a, um, uh, there, there's a, a huge uh, confusion uh, that, that that takes place.
But I think, uh, and the other point that I always make is, of course, women can possess the phallus, which is a symbolic concept. It's not tied to a bodily organ, not dependent upon it, but the culture has tied it to a bodily organ so that uh, women right. can uh, possess the phallus just as much as men can possess the phallus. But the phallus never um, is this kind of imaginary, powerful thing that the culture makes it out to be. But because of that link, that's why I think there's so much obsession with uh, penis size. And I know this varies between countries. And the three of us are in three different countries. So yeah. um, yes. maybe there's something to be said um, about that in a minute. But um, the, uh, the idea that big penises are impressive spectacles is linked, of course, to a notion of power. Just the word impressive um, is uh, the, the connotations are always um, kind of uh, interesting uh, to me with these, with these words. Um, I think that that, uh, that notion is tied to the idea, really, of the cultural ideas of the phallus rather than any kind of literal um, aspect of, uh, of the penis. So I think what mm. you see in representation, and this is true, like, in not just in film representation, for example, there... And, and interestingly, there was a period in Hollywood history when it seemed like almost every movie had penis-sized jokes. And so, and you know, 99% of those jokes, it's men with small penises that are um, the butt of the joke. So there's yeah. a, 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 a kind of um, assumption of this great symbolic um, power that's um, associated with the site of the penis, which comes in part because it is confused for um, many people with the phallus, and they look upon it as that symbolic phallus rather than, um, than just uh, being an organ. Right, right. I find this so interesting um, listening to coming from the perspective of somebody with an interest very specifically in, um, in screen violence, in gendered violence. Uh, representations of gendered violence on screen um, and, and obviously uh, rape, rape films in, in particular and, and the representation of rape on, on screen. You know, there's this, obviously this, you know, precedent in, you know, art history, literature um, with things like, you know, the dagger and the sword and, um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we move into, into more contemporary cinema, you know, things like the, the chainsaw or the baseball bat being this sort of stand-in <laughs> for, for phallic male power. And what's curious to me, Peter, listening to you, is is that size is still an issue? You know, leather faces, chainsaws, a big chainsaw. You know the, you know what I mean? It's, it's still this thing. Mm. It's he hasn't got like a tiny little, you know, little right. stabby knife, um, which is curious because you know then we move to to perhaps you know Italian Italian horror, giallo cinema of the 1970s, which of course is linked so strongly to the switchblade, which is much smaller, but there's also, um, those films are really marked, especially the films of, you know, somebody like Dario Argento, but really across the board, they're marked by this um, uh, gender fluidity, you know, like killers that we often assume are male are revealed to be women. So mm. it actually does really work into that, this idea of, of um, you know, small penis, bad masculinity, that equation. Um it actually yeah. works. It, it actually applies really quite specifically to to the very specific field that that I'm kind of, I guess, most interested in. Um, I just keep thinking of Leatherface's giant chainsaw. You know, it's it's not subtle. 
Right. Yeah. No, it isn't. That's, I mean, it's I, everywhere. No, I, yeah. By the way, uh, Alex, I share your interest. Um, though I'm not the scholar of it that you are. I have written one essay on female rape revenge films, and I'm extremely oh. interested in them. Yeah, I have quoted your nice. essay on, I've quoted from oh, it. It's a very, oh, I know I, it. It's very, very good. <laughs> it's well, an excellent piece of That's so kind of you. <laughs> um, so I presume we're going to get to that. Um, yeah, that's actually because it, we're short on time. I mean, I could listen to you for days. Um, next up, uh, Rape Revenge. Um, so Alex, um, my first question would be, um, you know, seeing as this is such a kind of controversial, often maligned subgenre, um, and often labeled as sexist, um, how would you describe the difference between women directing such films and, and men, if there are any? This is actually um, something I feel quite passionately about. So the first edition of my book, Rape Revenge Films, a critical study, came out in 2011, and I released in 2021 a 10-year anniversary second edition of that book, which has a whole mm-hmm. new chapter in it on women-directed rape revenge films. Um, yes, the book right. is quite, the second edition is quite substantially reworked from the first edition. Um, and one of the things I think people assume that, that there's a, a, a sort of ideological and, and a qualitative um, improvement. I mean, and, and, and why, we, want, we want more women making films. We want more, we want more, you know, diverse filmmaking, full stop across the board. But just because a woman makes a rape revenge film doesn't automatically give her um, a pass. And I really actually mm-hmm. champion women who have made really difficult or really confrontational or really offensive rape revenge films. And they exist. I mean, they're out there. Sachi Hamano mm-hmm. is a really well-known Japanese kink film director. She's fantastic. She made a great film that I really love called Drifted Into Chaos in 1989. She's nasty. It's a nasty film. Um, Anne Perry mm. made two hardcore rape revenge films, Teenage Sex Kitten in 1975 and Sweet Savages in 1979. This idea that everything is going to be promising young women when a woman directs a rape revenge film, let it go. Mm-hmm. Just let it go. Mm-hmm. And even promising young women, right? It's it's a controversial film. It's not necessarily a film that everybody yeah. agrees on uh, in terms of that film's politics. Uh, Base Noir, I think, is one of the best films yeah. um made in France from that that era, whether it's a rape revenge film or not, you know, the the directors of that film have been pretty ambivalent too. You know, they're they're fine if people want to describe it that way. But when you watch the film, it's actually not really, which I think is interesting. But I guess Mm. this feeds into bigger issues um, when we link this back to the subject that we're interested in talking about today, which is um, the question to show or not to show. And I think that, that when we talk about, okay, this and I, I hate the word so much, but when people say, okay, this rape revenge film is problematic, um, obviously, often what they're talking about is this, this question of showing or not showing. And we never really ex- talk about it explicitly, but part of that is whether we show the penis or not. Um, but the question of mm-hmm. even just showing the rape um, yeah. is, is a really big deal in, in, in discourse surrounding rape revenge film and critical discourse. Um, because on one hand, and, you know, this obviously isn't just me who's who's talked about this I can at least go back to somebody like Sarah Projansky and her incredible book Watching Rape where you know she talks about if you don't show it you risk downplaying the horror of it and the reality of it but if you do show it Mm -hmm. then you risk exploiting it or sensationalizing it so I think that when you bring the question of the penis 
into this um, as a weapon, both in terms of the penis, you know, the singular penis as a weapon. And I'm, I'm talking here about generally about um, man against women rape revenge. There are obviously different mm -hmm. kinds. Um, but also broadly, you know, into this symbolic domain of, of the phallus, you know, it's, we have these very, very big, very difficult questions that I start, you know, it's like, yes, rape revenge films are really hard to talk about. And I think that when we start drilling down, it actually gets more and more difficult. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, I agree with the things you're saying. And I, I was thinking back to, of course, one of the most controversial ones in, early on in the cycle was I spit on your grave. Right. Which um, it was so controversial. And of course, it did show the penis several times, including uh, literally a close up of the woman cutting it off um, one of her victims uh, when he's uh, in a bathtub. Um, but, uh, you know, the, an, another point that I uh, was thinking about listening uh, to Alex uh, with that very good summary is um, I've always, be, because like her, and it doesn't necessarily, it's not just generational with technology, I've always been a great admirer of the extremes of like uh, great avant-garde filmmaking and independent filmmaking and then exploitation filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I'm actually more wary of the supposed good taste of Hollywood in the middle. <laughs> yes, so, yes, so, I agree. <laughs> I always want to come to the defense of the word exploitation when you mm -hmm. say like mm. it's a matter of is it exploitation or is it uh, uh, whatever. I can't remember what the other point was. And um, I don't think we should think of exploitation as bad in the way we're supposed to. We hear the word exploitation film and we think, um, I don't know, that we should feel guilty we're watching it or something. <laughs> and and uh, mm. I think in many exploitation films, some of the more disreputable genres um, actually offer the most uh, uh, strongest critique of uh, of culture and ideology than uh, what you get in the so-called serious dramas or so forth that are uh, more mainstream. And um, so it's true that uh, there's there, there are charges of exploitation. Uh, they were just nonstop with I Spit on Your Grave, but it's also interesting to me. I was interested in that film from the minute I saw it the first time, but uh, just a few years ago, I remember A.O. Scott in the New York Times actually wrote about it and how the kind of visceral impact of films like that within a theatrical setting at the time that they came out and so forth, that um, and the time that they were made was, um, you know, uh, it, it was not recognized by the dismissive um, reception context with this, you know, this is trash and you should be embarrassed for watching it. So it's, it's mm. interesting that we, uh, that we think about those terms and not just do, um, you know, by the yeah. uh, kind of mainstream knee jerk response, the word exploitation. It's terrible if it's exploitation. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's also these days a much bigger network of, of film fans who find, who found each other online or whatnot, different networks where, 
it's like growing and growing and all these DVDs coming out of like rare <laughs> exploitation films, so to speak. And it's like much more, there's much more awareness of, of it, that, you know, actually how, how beneficial it is to watch it. <laughs> basically. I agree. Yeah. Um, I- and I, I also think that, you know, you have things like the relationship between uh, Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring and Wes Craven's Last House on the Mm. Left that almost sort of um, play out for us precisely the distinctions that that Peter's just made. It's like we don't need the in-between to have a really good, solid conversation. (laughs) I really really agree with you on that front. To me, me, exploitation cinema is honest cinema, whether we like it for better or for worse. Yeah. That's such a great example, Alex. I'm going to um, borrow that from you sometime. It's all yours. And I, I'm a big fan of his, like his early, his early films. I, I just are to me just among the most brilliant of um, the, the history of horror films. But that's um, that's a fascinating observation you just made. Hmm. Um, well, you mentioned some of the films, um, like I Spit on Your Grave and Besmois, um, and also Violation. I was wondering, because um, in those films, the penis is seen. Um, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how, like what purpose that serves in, in, in those films, if you... Yeah, um, I mean, for me, like, irre- irre- I mean, Peter will obviously have a lot more to say about this than I do, but something like Irreversible... Gaspar Noe's mm. film, which has the the famous uh, CG yeah. penis in it. I mean, the decision to do that and the decision to go to all of that work in post to include that, I think, is really fascinating, regardless of what you think of that film. And it's a, it's a you know, it's a doozy. It's a very, very challenging film, even by rape revenge standards. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the conscious decision there and and you know on top of the films that you've just mentioned something more recent like sam ashurst's film a little more flesh from 2020 um which uh, <laughs> just has one of the most extraordinary moments uh in in a rape revenge film with a very graphic close-up shot of a, of a penis yeah i mean mm. i mean for me i think it it it's a film by film case but i think somebody with peter's expertise may be able to draw the um draw the links better than I can but certainly there's like a shock factor right because as you said from the very outset we're not used to seeing penises on film so when we see them in the context of these extremely violent movies there's almost like a double whammy it's like whoa 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 (laughs) yeah no that's uh and, and you know the you were getting close to another issue there that I hope we have time to touch on which is um, I think the last development that I mentioned or the next to the last to understand why we're seeing more penises in films now was the rise of the prosthetic penis, right. which um, I have uh, some serious misgivings about how um, how they're used and what they're doing to the representation of the male body. But Alex, I'd be very interested in hearing what your thoughts are on that. I guess... It's interesting because when I think of, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the irreversible CG penis to the side, but when I do think of um, prosthetics and the kinds of films that I watch, there's a comic factor. There's a comedy factor. It's like a punchline, um, which I guess Peter ties into some of the points that you've made more broadly, you know, about, about dick jokes, you know, about the, um, and it's not even about size. I think it's in, in the context of the films that I'm thinking of. It's just by the. 
it's almost the sheer audacity of just showing what's not shown, what's what's not ordinarily shown. Um, so, you know, I mean, certainly castration is not rare in, in rape revenge films, but you usually don't see it. Um, there's a really interesting film. We talked about women-directed rape revenge films. There's a film called Traps by uh, Vera Chitlova, the, the queen of the Czech New Wave uh, from 1998. And the woman in that film is a vet. So we actually, that film starts with a graphic close-up of her castrating a pig. And then mm. she goes on and castrates her, her, her rapists. And we have that association because we've seen this really, really graphic footage um, of an animal and that really stays with us. So I, I do think that there's some um, some complexities here. Oh, uh, I just think in the act of showing when, when linked to this specific kind of violence. Yeah, mm. I, 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 I'll make a point about those in a second. But Alex, I was going to ask you, have you seen um, uh, Oshima's film in the realm of the census? I have, but not for many, many years. That was okay. another one that I think that did the videotape rounds with my friends. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you probably do remember, though, that there's a very graphic um, castration mm -hmm. scene at the end of that film where there's actually a close-up of the knife cutting through um, the penis, and then um, she throws it on the floor next to the body, and you see it in a kind of long shot. And then there's a long shot of um, uh, the dead man's body where um, his, um, it's not just that he doesn't have a penis, but it looks like he's got um, almost like a um, vaginal opening. Mm -hmm. um, but that's one, that's the earliest instance that I can think of, of. And of course, when you talk about those, that kind of extreme violence, you're entirely right about um, the uh, going film by film, that, that those are not the kinds of films where I have concern with um, using uh, uh, penises that are, you know, obviously not um, not real penises, uh, and uh, so now we call them prosthetic penises. But I know that term didn't exist then. But I think obviously no one's going to promote a form of filmmaking where, you know, for the sake of realism, you cut off someone's penis. But what bothers me about a, a major I'm thinking now of the mainstream cinema and television as well, where uh, one of my points in my book, Running Scared, and again, that was within a different historical time setting than, um, than we have now, a lot of people were, you know, all the emphasis, not only in filmmaking, it's what I think Alex was saying at the beginning, Eleanor, you were saying this as well, that, you know, you notice how much emphasis there is on showing women's bodies, and every, all the emphasis was on talking about women's bodies in extreme detail. And the paradox was that um, mm -hmm. the male body became um, a, a mystery. And that kind of uh, sense of a mystique surrounding the penis by not talking about it, by not showing it, that kind of mystique was um, a dream for patriarchal culture and the notion of the powerful phallus. Because what better way of perpetuating that ridiculous myth than never letting people see or talk about what penises really are like than to you know, yeah. keep them in the dark. So that in a way, um, just bringing them into the light uh, is uh, something which uh, at least, you know, is uh, 
threatens that sense of um, the mystique that comes from uh, never seeing and um, never talking about something. But in at least in the United States now, and again, it might be different in your countries, but I'm finding that increasingly the use of the um, prosthetic penis actually is almost reactionary in that um, it's, uh, there's all these explanations for why how wonderful they are and it makes everyone comfortable and we should use them all the time and so on and so forth. But in fact, it does two things that are um, very traditional and very conventional. And one is that um, the filmmakers get to create what they feel is the right penis for their character. Mm. And that, of course, it's like continues this notion that, oh, well, if the character is going to be, you know, a powerful um, gladiator, why then he better have a very big penis. And of course, right. the reality is there's with nothing, there's no connection between mm. like a great football player or a great baseball player or whatever. And um, uh, you'll find the same diversity penis of penises yeah. in those locker rooms as you will anyplace else. And the um, this idea of fixing the, the notion that and the actors that talk about this so seriously that I got a chance to think about well what kind of opinions would my character have that <laughs> to me that's ridiculous just yeah. outrageous we should be laughing yeah. at that um, and uh, you know the people that make them and the directors they all talk about it so seriously um, when it's uh, it creates this false notion again that when you look at a man's penis you get some kind of insight and, oh, yeah, look at that. He must be a really strong, powerful um, gladiator or he must be a very uh, powerful businessman or, or whatever it is. So that's um, that's one of the things that bothers me. And the, uh, the other is that um, it pushes the real penis back into darkness because this argument that we should always show, it's becoming more and more dominant now to have um, prosthetic penises and uh, this idea that yeah. a prosthesis is something that you wear. It's like a costume. It's part of a costume. Uh, if I had it my way, we wouldn't call it male nudity when there's mm. prosthetic yeah. penises yeah. because sure. it goes back to telling everyone. And of course, within the patriarchal imbalance and certainly with what we started, started talking about within the world of cisgender um, patriarchal imbalance, then like women are back in the position of, uh, you know, uh, it's like they don't even see, a lot of people watching movies now think they're seeing male nudity, but they aren't. They're seeing a right, costume. Some, some of the, it's some of the actors and stuff are... Are, are also quite coy about it, right? Like they're not actually, some are like, exactly. maybe it's real, maybe it's not. Exactly. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, and then that's supposed to increase the box. Exactly. And that goes yeah. back to the star system too. Oh, the actors love to talk about that. And all that is like, to me, it's like pretty um, embarrassing in the sense of, yeah. um, it seems like a big step backwards. That's not to, I agree with Alex, though you have to look at individual films. And there are some films where the use of a prosthetic penis makes perfect sense and is the right choice. But this idea that um, we can now go around promoting films and television shows, the, late, the most recent in the United States is one called The Minx, that not only is it ridiculous to 
advertised it as um, bold and courageous. I mean, back in the 70s, as we were talking about, there was something bold and courageous about mm -hmm. what filmmakers were doing within that, uh, within that context. But now to take mm -hmm. a step back and want people to believe that the only male nudity they should see or primarily that they should see is um, a prosthetic penis rather than a real penis is um, because the, the argument, of course, is, well, now we can have lots of male nudity because they all get to wear prostheses. Speaking of, uh, you know, uh, what we would like, <laughs> what we'd like to see, um, would you say there are some examples of, or can you think of some examples of, of positive or even like neutral representations of the penis? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leap in here um, because I know that, that um, one of the things you also wanted to talk about was the lack of sex appeal in current films. Um, mm -hmm. And I, for me, that's sort of subjective, you know, like what, what gets you hot? Sure. You know? I mean, so that's always a kind of interesting question, I think. Uh, but also where you're looking. And again, I, I think this comes down to are we just looking at the mainstream or are we looking at the, the more supposedly highbrow, lowbrow ends of the spectrum or the indie side of the fence? Um, and a film that I'm really obsessed with at the moment, and I just, I love it so much, um, is a film by a guy called Ben Hosey um, from 2020. He made a movie called PVT Chat with Julia Fox and mm. Peter Back. I've really low, low, low budget, super, super low budget. It's just, it's about an online gambler who becomes obsessed with a cam girl and he sort of bumps into her by accident in the local 7-Eleven. And that film for me just has such a, a naturalized, easy nudity to it and a naturalized, easy eroticism to it. And it's, it's you know, it's it's not hardcore, but it's graphic. You know, you see, um, you mm -hmm. see the main characters dick a lot in that, in that film. Um, also in a sexual setting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really mm -hmm. interesting because he's a total loser, but he's got a big dick. And it's really interesting to think of that in relation to, to Peter's sort of general discussion about that but what I really like about that film and what I really like in films that do nudity regardless of gender um in a really interesting way is when it's not party trick nudity when it's not reveal nudity when it's not that sort of bam spectacle nudity but there's something I guess mm. more organic I, I guess I hesitate with the word naturalized but yeah party trick nudity is something that I'm really not at home mm -hmm. to and these interesting yeah. these really interesting movies I think and I do think that there's an interesting challenge when it comes to the question of nudity in general, to reject, I guess, or move beyond Laura Mulvey's idea, you know, that famous idea of to be looked oh, atness in screen representation. And she's talking about women's bodies there, but I think it applies mm -hmm. that to be looked atness is, you know, with that, um, the the fetishization in a, you know, I guess in a, is a really obvious word, but you know, the, the wow moment, that party trick moment, that reveal moment um, where male nudity is, is on screen. It's a to look. Yeah. It's a to be looked at moment, and it's like, okay, can we move beyond that? And something like PVT Chat, I think, does move beyond that, and and I really celebrate films like that. Well, that's great. Mm. I like the way too, because I agree with you about that term, casual nudity. In some of the recent yeah. articles I've written, I've kind of concluded them. They're uh, more journalistic pieces, but I've tried to con conclude them with saying. You know, why can't a penis just be a penis? Why do we have to make so much yeah. out of it? Exactly. You know? and, exactly. And that, yeah. That's really what you're saying, Alex, that's when cool. you're talking about casual. And I think that's great. Um, I'll give you one quick yeah. example of, um, of a film that 
uh, might address your question, Eleanor. It's uh, have, mm -hmm. have have either of you seen the film Zola from 2020, directed no. by yes, 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 name, right? Uh, Janisha Bravo. It's a U.S. Janiska, film, I no? think. Yeah, Janiska Bravo, um, I think. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that has reason, a lot of nudity in there. Yeah. Um, I'll just leave you with a couple thoughts, and one of these will should link up directly with what Alex was just talking about. I think when we look for ways of trying to break loose of these patterns of representation that in various ways we find oppressive and, and everything everyone is saying kind of fits into that in some way, um, it's, they're too limited. If nothing else, they're oppressive by being so, so limited. It came from a place I never thought about till I went, I was invited to a conference called the Scientific Study of Sexuality, people that were outside my field, um, social scientists mostly, psychologists and therapists. Um, and I, I met someone there who, um, uh, at that time, that was years ago still, was doing um, uh, nudist magazines. And mm -hmm. I got kind of interested in that, talking with him, and he gave me a sample of one of his magazines and a kind of obvious light went on for me. Um, when I was a kid, nudist magazines were all blurred when it came to the genitals. They were real popular, but they were blurred. But in fact, within the current context, um, there was a startling sense of, uh, and again, I'll use Alex's term with the same caution that we're not naive about what this word means, but it has a certain meaning, a naturalness, because these are people who are comfortable in their skin being in public places with no clothes on. And there's a startling variety to the penises that you see there that I don't think you really ever see in a film. I'm going to come back to Zola in a second. Um, and so one thing that I recommend is that people think about, go to the internet if you haven't done this, and instead of searching like porn sites, for example, or um, sites about the history of male nudity in movies, um, search under, um, they use different terms, Google terms, now I can't remember what they all are, but like under um, nudist camps, or uh, I can't remember what other terms they use, mm. and there's websites full of pictures of people who are actually actual nudists, mm -hmm. and it's an interesting contrast to how the star system functions in the casting, mm. the casting system. And the reason I'm going to mention um, Zola here for my parting uh, example is that, um, and I'm not familiar with Bravo. I haven't seen her, her other films or whatever. Um, it's an interesting mm -hmm. movie. Um, but she talks about how uh, one of the, uh, it's about two women that um, the short version is they're, um, they become, they are or become prostitutes in the course in the course of the film, and there's um, a sequence where um, she wanted to show um, what it, you know, the assumption was what it might be like for a prostitute going through from one John to another in one night's work, and she didn't want to deal with film actors, so. Um, she actually contacted a nudist. Um, they use other terms oh. these days, and I forget what some of them are, naturalist or something like that, nudist, whatever. 
she um, contacted one of those groups and um, then uh, they, uh, she chose her actors. And these were though, these fit into the pattern that Alex and I both have reservations about the way the composition was very much look at this, you know, um, with the kind of almost uh, mm -hmm. close shots. But it's interesting because they were from the point of view of the woman and you didn't see the whole male body, you just saw their penises. And in fact, she had a montage of four of them and like the first three really struck me as, yes, this is what you see in a nudist, you know, in the nudist magazines that I've been looking at and with my knowledge as a man in various contexts of locker rooms and so forth, that um, the uh, these were uh, in, Right. much smaller penises than what you normally see in, you know, um, in male nudity in movies. So I was reading um, this really brilliant New York Times piece by Wesley Morris. You're probably familiar with it, The Last Taboo, um, where he talks about his experience as a gay black man and uh, and the expectations of, of you know, that I don't, that, I don't that think has. I'm bad with names and titles. I don't think I am familiar with it. Okay. Um, well, he, he, here's a quote from, from this um, article. Um, he says, there's no parad paradigmatic white penis, but there is a paradigmatic black penis. So it seems like black penises are even more rare to see. Um, maybe that's because of their over-sexualization in society. And um, yeah, some, some of the rare examples that, I, that came to my mind are Melvin Van Peebles' uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering if you, if you have any thoughts on um, why black male nudity is even more invisible. It's a very complicated question and one I'm very interested in, which is um, racism is strongly tied to um, in, uh, when dealing with um, men in different cultures, different ethnic groups and racial groups. Um, racism is strongly tied um, to the penis. We live in a culture where um, the dominant stereotypes and the stereotype of one race is always tied to other races. It's never just one race. Yeah. So that in the United States right now, for example, black men are stereotyped as having very large penises and being hypersexual. Mm -hmm. Asian men are stereotyped as being uh, very small and being undersexed. And white men yeah. are characterized as being in the middle and invisible. The norm, so to speak. So you don't yeah. pay attention to white men when he says no white paradigmatic. It's interesting because there is, there are some things to be said about the representation of the white penis, but I think his wording is well chosen in the sense that yeah. the white man is frequently invisible uh, between the stereotypes of the other races that are too much or too little. And the implication of that is, of mm -hmm. course, well, then white man must have just the right amount because he's in the middle. Um, but mm -hmm. I think in terms of the question that you're raising, and I've seen um, both those movies you just mentioned, and they're very good movies. Mm -hmm. But I think when we think about um, the, uh, the kind of stereotypical, what I think the author you quoted was calling the paradigmatic um, uh, black penis, which is, of course, supposed to be this um, very large sign of hyper-masculinity and hypersexuality, um, that the place that you do see that in movies to the point of incredible um, prevalence and 
extreme stereotyping is pornography. It's not right, so course. much in mainstream, the kinds of films we've been talking about, but if, if on porn websites, um, the most, the, the really popular, um, globally popular yeah. porn websites almost all have categories of what they call BBC. And yeah. the BBC category is big black cocks. And yeah. so uh, there's an excess of seeing, and that's like too complicated to get into here, though I have. And it really perpetuates this uh, the stereotype, yeah. Yeah, but see, again, there's very, there's kind of mixed feelings about these things. I have um, mm. edited, published a book on pornography that I edited, and I, I have written mm -hmm. on pornography, but I don't want to take up much time here beyond saying that, um, I mean, I do think we should stop thinking of porn as being, it's not like, it's what we were talking about with exploitation cinema. If we kind of talk about movies as if pornography doesn't exist, then we can mm -hmm. make certain kinds of generalizations. But pornography is a form of um, filmmaking, and it has an excessive preoccupation with uh, stereotyping black men as you know the, yeah. the BBC category. So I would just make that observation and say these things are really complicated and it's like the um the pho the photographer robert maplethorpe are you familiar yeah. with his work yeah yeah mm -hmm. because he was yeah. you know there's a very interesting uh, set of essays written by an important um uh black scholar whose name i think is unfortunately going to um, slip my mind now who initially wrote a piece denouncing that work for just per perpetuating these horrible stereotypes about black men and mm -hmm. um, their sexuality. And then he reconsidered and he wrote another piece about, well, actually this work is interesting because um, he's having his work shown in art museums and in art museums, the, the, the nude that you usually see is the white woman, the white woman. And mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. um, you know, the black man and his sexuality which, and it's done in a way that upsets the traditional patriarchal notion of what kind of nude body you want to see. The beautiful um, white woman, mm. you know, uh, nude body or um, the, uh, the black man with a very large penis. And all the black men in his photographs had unnoticeably large penises. So I just mentioned that as an example, again, about how we have to think carefully uh, about this from my perspective as someone who has studied pornography i agree with you i find it disturbing um, to perpetuate stereotypes of black men in that way mm -hmm. though some people argue mm -hmm. well black men used to be robbed of their sexuality and they were even killed for having it by being lynched yeah. and so forth and so acknowledging that they are um uh, sexually powerful is, you know, so there's always like two sides to the thing, but I get very, what lies beneath my work is a kind of concern about um, when we restrict representation, when we make it too strict so that um, yeah. if black, the BBC category of black men was like one category 
of many categories of black men, mm -hmm. it might be something yeah. different. But Definitely. by seeing it over and over and over, every time there's a, a, a new a black man on um, these sites, he's like very large. So I do find that um, disturbing. And the reality mm -hmm. is that real black men who are living in this world, growing up, defining their masculinity, their sense of um, their sexuality and so, so forth, um, it's a horrible burden to be um, to live within the shadow of such a horrible stereotype about black men that they all have big yeah. penises. And apropos where this discussion started, even if it were true that they all had big penises, which isn't true, but let's just say it was all true, there would still be that issue of so what? It doesn't tell us. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean they're hypersexual. Mm -hmm. Um, because they have mm -hmm. a big penis. That's where all these cultural mm -hmm. ideas about the phallus come in. This is a, a very gendered question, you could say, but it's just a question to both of you, uh, just based on your experience. Um, so Alex is a woman, uh, you know, tackling rape revenge, and Peter is someone who's giving a, a clear-eyed analysis of, of a fraud topic, like the representation of the penis. Um, I was wondering if you you know, have you've gotten like strange reactions while researching these fields from your fellow, you know, researchers or just like broader society, I guess, like that people are surprised that you of all people are are discussing this? Uh, yes. <laughs> this is my answer. Okay. Alex, are you going to tell one? Or you <laughs> yeah, you know, interestingly, um, interestingly, I think I got more uptight. I mean, perhaps it's not that interesting. Perhaps it's not surprising. But uh, academia was certainly, you know, when I was more, uh, I'm, I'm really a sort of, I call myself a recovering academic now. I don't work in academia anymore. But when I did, um, <laughs> I, yeah, and it was always sort of um, uh, a certain demographic, I guess, of, of of men that would look at me like, what happened to you? They would never say it. Mm. And I think if they said it, I would actually have, you know, you could have a conversation. Um, but it was always, you know, what, what happened to you? And um, I don't get that when I work at film festivals or, or you know, when I when I move into more of a, um, a, a public space. And um, mm -hmm. one, I talk about this in the second edition of my book, but one of the best things that's, that's come out of my work is just talking to people um, wherever I, you know, if I give lectures or, or speak at film festivals, if I introduce films, um, always people will come up to me afterwards. I've, I've, I've had so many conversations with people that I know for a fact, and you can see it in their face, that they've never told anybody what's happened to them. And this is men as much as mm -hmm. women. Um, and it always really stays with me. Um, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the, that's an extraordinary feeling, um, and not negative at all, you know, be, to be able to make that connection. What I often get is people, and again, this is often more men than women is asking for permission to find these films cathartic. Um, mm. you know, like I, I was, you know, I'm a survivor and I love these films, you know, and is there something wrong with me? And it's like, you know, they just mm. want somebody to say no no, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. You're okay. We're with you. Um, so that's, that's been the more positive point, but yes, yeah, certainly in, in academia that there's a very distinct look that I remember getting more than once. What happened to you? 
Peter, tell, tell us your stories. <laughs> very brief by saying, Alex, that was a stunning summary. I That's the exact same experience that I have in general with, um, with lecturing, um, when I do guest lectures, when I... Um, and I also taught a course for many years on masculinity and film. It was a small upper division, um, like a senior level and beginning grad level course. So um, the, the, to me, I, I can't, I can just say that everything Alex said rings true, that we find mm. everyone, including students in academia, it's the faculty and the administrators that give you those looks that she was talking about. Um, and um, this, the students, in fact, everyone who gets to um, be part of this, uh, they, they are so grateful for the conversations. And to me, I've learned so much from those conversations. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it is, my experience is identical um, to Alex's. But um, mm. when you're a, a man talking about this stuff, and especially someone who self-identifies as a kind of, um, you know, with, with what they used to call a straight man, a straight heterosexual, when I was starting to do this work, and these terms are important to remember for the historical context. Um, when I was first going to con- uh, conferences and starting to do this work, you would get some very strange, um, but they didn't upset me. I just ignored them. But, you know, I had, a, after one conference presentation, I had a gay man come up to me. I was standing by the elevator, and he said, I have to ask you a question. Do you have a large penis or a small penis? And oh I looked God. at him. Wow. I, I looked at him, and I said, you know, <gasps> when I started doing this kind of work, I knew I was going to have your <laughs> And then his defense, wow. and he looked at me without missing a beat. He gets really intense. He says, no, no, I really want to know. <laughs> and then later, <laughs> later um, there was a there was a party at the end of that conference where um, a woman came up and said virtually the same thing <laughs> while, you were, oh said, while, while you were talking. I was just thinking to myself, I wonder, um, you know, whether he's got a big one or a small one. And so, so wow. you know, <laughs> uh, you get those. Uh, and again, I don't really want to be critical of people who, I mean, I, I think I, what I've thought over the years is it's just like in the early days of feminism. I'm old enough to remember when a lot of people who were so antagonistic against feminists that they thought there had to be something wrong with them. Yeah. Why, why would any woman be this way? And there were these really vulgar cliches in, in at least in the United States at that time where, boy, there's nothing wrong with that woman that I couldn't straighten out with taking her into a room closet for 15 minutes. And, you know, kind of vulgar statements that just implied there had to be something wrong with these women. They didn't know what sex, good sex really was, but these guys, they could straighten them out, you know, in like 15 minutes in a, in a closet. And um, so I think that, uh, you know, that... It's 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 kind of interesting because a lot of the, I mean the the general experiences we have, are very very positive, but as a as a heterosexual man, I have to tell you that I think a lot of people think they want to know what's wrong with me for being interested mm. in this topic because they just figure well there must be uh, there must be some explanation for it just like 
people had to believe yeah. there had to be something wrong with women who were feminists who wanted to right. do X, Y, and Z. And um, so, yeah. I, you know, people like that it bother It really shows, me. sorry. Okay, I was just going to say they bother me because only in the sense, I don't let it upset me, but they bother me in the sense that they confuse instead of thinking about what they're learning or what the subject is that they might think about, they want to instead displace it onto um, what happened to this. It's exactly yep. what Alex what happened to, exactly. to this person to make them want to talk about these things. It, it's like we, we embody an anomaly. It's, it's easier yeah. for people yeah. to deal with that than to actually think about the issues that we're raising. Exactly. Um, exactly. What's wrong with Peter, what's wrong with Alex is much, much, much easier to deal with than, okay, maybe there's some stuff here that we need to talk about that we actually are very uncomfortable culturally and socially talking about. Even if we're wrong, even if people don't agree with us, that's fine. Just have the conversation. Exactly. Ha have conversations exactly like this amazing conversation that we've just had here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have to. Yeah, it's, I have to say it's a real like sign of also how boundary breaking both of your works, you know, are like it's just really like people can't. Most people just can't really fathom the reasoning <laughs> because it's so unusual. And I think that's really so enriching. And I, I found, you know, reading both of your works, Alex, I'm more even more familiar with your work because I've been following it for years. And and Peter reading your book um, and also many articles, like it's just so it kind of gives me a, a sign of hope in a way, you know, that there is there are people who are willing to talk about it. And yeah, it's really, really important. Well, I, I think it's part, thanks to you, Eleanor, for putting this uh, podcast together. Because, <laughs> um, you did something very important here. And you've introduced me <laughs> to another scholar in the field that I hope to stay. Alex, I want to oh, say. Oh, we will. Yeah. I was <laughs> just thinking if, if I knew academics like yeah. you when I was at university, I probably wouldn't have left. <laughs> <laughs> these are precisely the reasons why I wanted to be an academic is to have exactly these conversations, not knowing that I could just do a podcast. It's amazing. <laughs> well, thanks, for, thanks for putting this podcast together, Eleanor, and you're the thank one. You, thank you for being willing to, to come on. Uh, you know, I'm sure it was kind of a strange email to get. So, so um, you're kidding. yeah, I'm really, oh, no. really you're, thankful. You're, apropos for what we just said, there was nothing strange about that email. <laughs> another day in the office, really. <laughs> If you want to hear about the strange emails. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I can only That's imagine. Another That's another podcast. <laughs> it's, it's been, been a treat. It, for me too, Alex. I just love. Just I lovely. Enjoy, I've enjoyed talking with you.